Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, this may or may not be the midpoint of the 2023 legislative session. It's hard to say. The goal is to get out of town by late March, and we'll see if they get there. But at any rate, this was a busy week in education politics at the State House as the debate over education savings accounts took center stage in the Senate Education Committee, Senate Education passing along a $45 million education savings account bill to the Senate floor that will come up for a vote probably sometime next week. To get caught up on where we stand on the school choice debate and on a host of other education topics, I sit down this week with the chairs of the Legislative Education Committees, Senate Education Committee Chairman Dave Lent from Idaho Falls and House Education Committee Chairman Julie Yamamoto of Caldwell. Here's our conversation. Well, Senator, Representative, uh, thank you both for making the time this week. It feels like it's sort of a midterm. Maybe we're almost to the midpoint of the session, roughly speaking. But it really, this week, the story was obviously Senate education and the uh, the hearings on the education savings account bill. So, Senator, I want to start with you and just sort of get your takeaways from the six hours of hearings we had this week. Thanks, Kevin, and thanks for... Uh what you do. I enjoy reading uh, Idaho Ed News and keeping up on things that are happening across the state, so it's a valuable part of what we do. We had a great week, very busy, lots of things happening. Of course, we had the uh, choice bill on Tuesday come in. Uh, Senator Nichols presented her bill, uh, and we spent two days. We did well over 100 people came in. We were able to hear testimony. Um, interesting results. Uh, I kept some mental tabulations as we went through and I've also kept uh, some of my own correspondence both you know back in my home district and across the state but primarily what we're seeing in the in the feedback and, and the input from the public is that most people are saying no to this particular bill for a number of reasons and we heard many of those they were repeated uh, during the uh, testimonies but a lot to do with accountability mm -hmm. uh, I would say that would probably be number one uh, a number of other things came up, but uh, it, it was really interesting to hear the different perspectives and see the people who were the uh, doing the testimonies. Uh, we saw a lot of former educators mm -hmm. uh, and other people from throughout the state. So busy week. We accomplished a lot. Uh, the commitment was to to let the process run its course. Uh, they had come to me earlier this year before the session and talked about this bill and how important it was to them and and I assured them that we would we would hear the bill and we've done that uh, there were no surprises in the vote no. uh, and so it will now progress to the floor um, however I do think uh, and I mentioned uh, you know when I voted that there are other bills coming behind that's what I was gonna ask and <laughs> yes you voted no on this one and obviously you said there are other bills coming so summarize that why why did you vote against this particular bill, and what are you hoping maybe to see in a different bill that uh, that you might be more comfortable with? Oh, great question. Well, uh, Chairman Yamamoto and I had the good fortune to be in Arizona this last fall, and uh, we also set, we actually went to dinner with the, the lead legislator from Arizona who had been carrying a lot of their choice bills and was kind of the expert, is what I got from it. So we sat down and had dinner and asked lots of pointed, hard questions. And what my takeaway from that was, he was pretty direct when he said, this is a journey. 
you don't just, uh, you know, the leadership model here is you bring your people and you bring your state with you. Uh, and he, his advice, as I understood it, was uh, ease into this, uh, see what works for your state, works for your education system. This particular bill, as it was described, was we're starting with Arizona and then building from there. Mm -hmm. Arizona had been at this for more than 10 years, so uh, quite a difference. And for me, uh, going from zero to 60 in one second is just too much. Uh, too many unanswered questions, uh, too many things that were just left that we couldn't answer as far as uh, how it was going to impact our schools. When, when questions were asked about, okay, we understand that you know, it's going to cost this much to start, but where are we at five years from now? And what do we see across the country? And, and it's pretty obvious that we see hundreds of millions of dollars going into these programs. And then another kind of startling fact that was pretty obvious was that most of those who participate in these programs are already in private schools. Right, sent new, new kids into the private school system, the parochial school system. Right. So not that many kids actually leave the, as percentage, leave the public system in, and go to the private schools. Most of, most of the higher percentage are already there. And at the end of the day, what you end up doing is you end up essentially funding two school systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, the, you know, the inference is that you're going to take kids out of the public system and, and migrate them to the supposedly a better system. But in reality, what happens is the original system doesn't close down. You may have gone from 28 students to 24, but you still have a school to maintain and, and everything associated with that. And, and the costs don't change between a 28 right. uh, school, uh, 28 students and 24 students. Yeah. It's costs. Representative, you've been watching this from <laughs> from the other side of the rotunda, but not the, from the, afar. Uh, I was going to say closely. the debate is not very far from from you, and it's going to come to your committee. What has been your impression of what you're hearing so far, and, and what could we expect to see? in your committee as this, uh, as this hits the House. Impressions very similar to what Senator Lent has just, so I won't reiterate those, just my concern being everywhere that we have seen a full-blown ESA that the, um, if people want property tax relief, but then with the education budget doubles or triples, that's a tough, it's challenging how how would we actually make that happen um, so especially when we're also dealing with the health care issues on the other side of things so what I had said from the beginning and in, in the house education I would like us to only have one ESA bill that we aren't going over and over this so my attempt to make that happen uh, didn't uh, fare very well and my um, what I'd hoped was that they would talk up, uh, to the House Education members, and we would come up with one or two, not, and then hear the RS, and then pick one. Um, that, and it could very well be that the Senate bill that uh, Senator Nichols brought forth would be that one. So it was, it was just let's kind of narrow it down uh, so that we're having that discussion with the public one time instead of. I my understanding is that there are at least. Uh, potentially five other iterations of some kind of a educational savings account. That's so that it just seems um, counterproductive to me to have that conversation over and over right. again. Because 
there's going to be something for somebody to like and somebody for somebody right. to dislike in all of these five or six bills. What are you most hoping to see yourself in an ESA bill? What would what would you what would you be looking for? What's I have never had a problem with parents having choice, but I do have a problem with uh, if we are going to hold people accountable for taxpayer money, and I think we should, then that accountability should be in any any bill, and whether choice or wh whatever your choice is, which is in large part why many homeschoolers have not been eager for any of this legislation to come about. And I know that, and I'm sensitive to that. So my hope would be that we would make it clear that they are not, that they, if they don't take any funds from the state, they are not going to be held accountable for what they're doing. And they've, they've had some uh, significant angst over believing that that could actually be, you know, so I don't know if you call it, uh, there are homeschoolers and then there's state-funded choice, then at least it, it lets you know why there are there's accountability measures that are tied to those funds. But I cannot imagine that uh, taxpayers in Idaho would ever be all right with just uh, forking over money with no strings attached, with no, with no accountability for how is that money spent and what is the result. What's the re we hear it over and over again, the business term of return on investment. How do we know that students are making academic gains and that they're, are they making a year's growth in a year's time? And if not, what are we gonna do about that? Uh, because all, all students deserve to have a quality education, whether they're homeschooled or in a private school or public ed. So I guess I would hope that whatever we would see would um, have the same accountability measures tied to it as we do to other public dollars. Public dollars for public schools. Mm -hmm. Representative, I want to stick with you and move to a different topic. Okay. I mean, you had really heated debate in committee and then on the House floor over Idaho launch. You supported it. It barely passed committee and then it barely passed the House. Were you surprised at what you heard unfold about that uh, that program? The only surprise to me was that the same argument that some would make in support of ESAs was the counter argument to the launch mm -hmm. and that it seems like a socialistic program that you give money to people and you know and that the only accountability you might have is whether they get a job and, and stay in Idaho or, or not but at least that to me is measurable you know we're gonna know and that is an appropriation that can be looked at year after year so I felt like that the accountability was there and I certainly believe that we want to uh, we have in-demand jobs I do not believe that we are trying to channel our inner China. <laughs> I just don't believe that anyone is trying to say students have to do this, that, or the other thing. But I certainly know that the door gets closed financially for a lot of students, especially students who maybe even in their first or second or even third year of their high school career blow up their GPA such that they are not in the running for any type of of um, scholarship or internship or you know that sort of thing so this allows them to kind of get that second chance at, uh, that is the American dream attainable by all or not well this is one way to help move that forward. Senator the bill is not in your committee but it is on the Senate side I wanted to get a sense of what you think is going to happen with this bill in the Senate and and the dust up we saw on the floor a few days ago about assigning this bill to the Commerce Committee, not to, to your Education Committee? 
Yeah, it was interesting, but uh, Workforce Development Council subjects have gone through the Commerce Committee. That's That's been the way. Uh, it is education-related, but my career was in adult education and training, retired as director of training from a from actually one of the contractors at the National Lab. So from my perspective, training is different than traditional education. Uh, I think the bill has run into some issues. We're working really hard to try to resolve those uh, and bring some... It sounds like some of it is the accountability question. It is the accountability question. What, what I really hope the message people would get was, and that I'm really pushing, is that that detail, don't lose sight of what the actual problem is, and that is that our middle class uh, is really, we're losing it. And by that I mean uh, through AI and the digital revolution that we're in, we have whole sectors of our workforce being carved out and done away with on a regular basis. Go to Walmart and check yourself out. Go to McDonald's. We see that now uh, truck drivers are at peril basically because of this. And so as the AI continues to develop in our culture, we'll, we'll continue to see these whole sectors of labor uh, need to be retrained and upskilled. Uh, so not only do we have a young generation coming from K-12 into a workforce that employers are saying, they don't have the right skill mix. I mean, yeah, they can do basic things, but they need more. Uh, we really learn and begin to appreciate what K-14 means versus K-12. K-14 gives them that little extra that then gets them to first base in their life as far as a, a living wage. Uh, certainly, uh, a high school education nowadays literally is a ticket to poverty. You can't live on just straight of high school. You have to somehow develop more skills and abilities. So uh, this is such an important topic. If Idaho is going to grow, and we know it's going to, and if we want economically to become a leader, we have to have the workforce. That's, that's step one. And in order to get that workforce, we have to take the lead and understand that we're going to have to do something to do a better job at building capacity of those who live here to upskill them to meet the needs of the 21st century. Do you think Idaho launch gets through the Senate? Um, I think it's going to have to be modified a little bit in some way, either a trailer bill or we might start something new, uh, you know, a new bill that comes across. And yeah, that's risky, um, but uh, it does have some things weighting it down right now. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's kind of where we're at. So we're right now working very hard to try to come up with the right answer right. And that will get it through. on the Senate side, if it's an amended bill, has to go back to the House that passed it 36 yes. to 34. So. Yeah, but hopefully anything we would do over here would resolve some of the issues that they had over there. That would kind of be the point. Right. I want to ask you both about what we're seeing in terms of legislation regarding school elections and school bonds and levies. And especially, sorry, you, Senator, I mean, as a former trustee yourself, mm. we've we've seen a bill pass the House that would eliminate the March and August elections, and we've seen another bill that was just presented this week that would really change the way school board elections are held. What are your thoughts on both of those? Uh, I'm not so concerned about dates on school board elections because I think if a school board does their job, they reach out and engage their community in the election, uh, they've done their work in it. In a, it will, it will pass. The dates aren't that important. Uh, so that doesn't bother me too much. Uh, we will have the school boards association and all the school board members, the majority, a large share of them here next week. Right. And I have an interesting message for them. 
And that message is if we're going to change the culture of public education, it begins with school board members. They have got to stand up and build confidence in their communities as to who they are and that they're willing to represent the values of their communities. I don't see that happening. I see too many of them on the television, sitting behind the tables and not saying a word. They need to change that narrative and be leaders in their communities of the values that they represent. It's all about building confidence and I, and I truly believe that's one of the reasons we're seeing people leave public education is they've kind of lost confidence in their public system. Do you think changes in the way we elect school trustees are, are appropriate? I mean, do you think this should be uh, two-year terms, uh, you know, elections coinciding with, you know, well, that's a good question. general elections, partisan general elections? Yeah, that's a great question. So historically, we have had wonderful people step up from our community and volunteer to serve. Historically, that has served us well because we've hired superintendents that come in and kind of guide the ship. We live in a different time. We live in a time when they're dealing on a regular basis with hot button issues. And just on Caldwell this week. Exactly. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I've had a bill and I'm going to bring another one this year that says school board members, because they actually handle about half of the state budget through those school districts. So not only do they handle a large share of public funds, but they handle uh, federal programs, labor issues. I felt for a long time that our school board members are underprepared when it comes to fulfilling the responsibilities and roles that they have. And it gets and to it, the training issue that Superintendent uh, Critchfield is talking about. Right. And, it, and you know, in my day, in training leadership in the corporate world, you would never turn people loose with that kind of responsibility without spending time educating them and building their capacity so that they're prepared to handle these situations. So I'm a major proponent of, and I'm gonna say this to him this week, number one, stand up and be a leader, represent the values of your community, build their confidence, and number two, take the opportunities to build capacity. Learn your systems, learn what it takes to be an expert so that you make the decisions that are best and help your students achieve. The representative, the House did vote to eliminate the March and August elections, and, and these uh, school board election bills uh, seem to be originating in the House. Give me your perspective on all of this. Well, I voted to keep those dates, and the reason that I did is because schools, unlike those of us who run for office, we are able to raise funds in order to go out and get our message out, and we are even able to hire people if we want to that help us with messaging. And that is not true for school boards. They cannot go out and say one way or another. Their job is just to get the information out. And yet they get uh, criticized if it goes home in a backpack, even if it's just the information. Uh, they get criticized if uh, we even had a bill last year that said that um, they, could, they couldn't even say if they were retiring a bond or a, a supplemental and therefore that's why it wasn't going to raise that how much they've right. been paying that, uh, that got fixed in the the Senate because that is a pertinent piece of information that should help a voter decide whether or not they want that to to go forward so given that we have such a high bar that 66 and two-thirds I felt like if that if the voting is what 
gets people engaged so that they come out to see, they get the message out again while they're asking for this, what is this? Uh, sometimes it does take two or three times, and I, I understand the no means no, but sometimes people do want more information, and it does allow a school district to think, we need to scale back, we need to look at this differently, and it is input that they use to, to modify what they then ask of their, their taxpayers. So I, you know, on the other end of it, as a person in the school, I never really appreciated having to go home and then make calls to try to tell people what we were doing, making very sure that I wasn't trying to lead somebody one way or another, just an informational, many hours spent on the phone at home, on my own time, on my own phone, trying to help people understand this is what we're asking for and why we're asking for it. And uh, so I, I can see both ways. I can, uh, you know, the handout that was given to us on the floor showed that out of those 10 uh, times that they went to the taxpayers, only two of them were successful. So even if it's a low margin, the voters were still having their say and they were, it, they voted them down, so. And it all ties to the one other topic I wanted to ask you both about, which is the school facilities funding issue. Mm -hmm. Both were on the working group uh, last fall. What do you think is, or what do you think are the prospects of this legislature addressing uh, the school facilities needs? I'm gonna let him start because he's the one who's really? come up with actually, yeah. Earlier this week. Yeah, so we have a bill coming through, and it's based on, in our meetings this summer, the thing that kind of surfaced, we had lots of ideas come up, but what really surfaced was the idea of tapping this, uh, what's called the state endowment lands mm -hmm. funds. Sure. And that's uh, state land that you get mining, forestry, grazing off, so it's income that comes from state land. So it's a revenue stream, and the idea simply is to take that revenue stream and dedicate it primarily to facilities and in the uh, with the purpose of reducing the property taxes associated with facilities and it would go to school facilities every year um, and the way we've got it built is there's a floor so that uh, if you're West Ada you wouldn't get eight million and Clark County would get eight thousand we've got it built in that it takes into account the uh, the, the population as well as the square footage facilities that you're trying to do and then there's also floors so the least a, a school district would get would be a hundred thousand a year something at least meaningful enough that they can do something right. very so. yeah so the idea is to be totally flexible with that they can save it they can bond against it they can uh, use it to make their bond payments um, but the intent is that to really address more fully from a state perspective and rely less on local property taxes for school facilities, which is something we've heard over and over from the state Supreme Court. So uh, we've got that bill coming through. Um, the kind of the catcher on this one is there's 61 million currently. That's what was done this year. How do you handle the 61 million now that has been going to the school general fund and replace that with 61 million uh, that goes just to facilities? So we've got to dance with our school districts to figure out how to manage that difference in the way the money's spent. But primarily the focus is if we're going to help solve these school facility issues, we've got to dedicate money to that, provide it to our districts, and then help them use that and help provide the direction and support to back off from property taxes as the primary source of funds for school facilities. I couldn't say it better than that. I, that's The issue is that we've been 
we have a backlog just like we did with roads and bridges for a very long time and some of those buildings to try to get them up to code is going to be a spendy process in and of itself. And, and I was struck in the House in the debate last week on the bill to eliminate the March and August elections that even folks who supported that move, like, like Brent Crane, were saying, but we have to do something different in terms of how we build schools. Right. We have to revisit this. And I think I totally honor his intentions, but we've been saying that for a while. And so we're, we really do need to take a hard look at something that somebody has come up with that is different than what we've looked at before, possibly that revolving loan fund that we looked at last year for charter schools mm -hmm. to look at that, yeah, more, more enlarged version of that for, for schools with this idea that you, you, you know, it gets paid back over time so that other schools then can, districts can use it. So we, we're going to have to get creative and that's why I worry about anything that adds a burden to already what the dollars are already. Um, because we are required to establish and maintain a system of public schools and that makes it very challenging when uh, some people want us to not fund a system. Uh, that's that give and take that you have to be uh, very wise and uh, thoughtful about how we go forward with the scarce dollars that we have. A lot to sort out in the uh, final, if this is just the second half of the session or, or however long it goes, a lot to, to work through. Thank you both for taking the time to walk us through where we stand right now. Appreciate the time. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you. Again, that was Senator Dave Lent, a Republican from Idaho Falls, who chairs the Senate Education Committee, and Representative Julie Yamamoto, a Republican from Caldwell, who chairs the House Education Committee. Big week of education news, and you can get caught up on all of it at idahoednews.org. Sadie Dittenberg and I have full coverage from the Senate Education Committee's hearings on the Education Savings Account Bill. You can get caught up there. Darren Svon has a series of stories that you'll want to check out. He spoke to students and parents about some of the education choices that they've made, some of the uh, tracks that they've taken, and how that's affected their uh, educational experience a series of four stories that ran all this week. You can get caught up on all of those stories at idahoednews.org. Carly Flandro has coverage from this week's meeting of the State Board of Education. So if you missed any of that, you can check those stories out at idahoednews.org. And follow us next week. And as long as the session's going on, we'll have uh, daily coverage from the State House and all the latest news in education policy and education politics from all over the state. You can also follow us on Twitter at IdahoEdNews. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on any breaking news. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And check back for another edition of my podcast and check back for another edition of Carly Flandro's Teacher's Lounge podcast. You can find those both wherever you find your podcasts. And if, since you found this podcast, you already know how to find a podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.